The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Would you remain standing with me as we read Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 16. Behold, The day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hundred gazelles, or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. So we come this morning to the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel. What we will find here is the Lord's longest recorded answer to any direct question in all of scripture. This passage has been come to be called the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13 in the parallels and Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Again, what we'll find here is Jesus answering a question, or more specifically, two questions that are posed by his disciples. Now, clearly these questions and the answer that Jesus gives, they're incredibly important to us. This is evidenced by the fact that Mark would devote such a large portion of his fairly short gospel to this teaching. And so I know that a number of you, you're already familiar with this text. You've been looking forward, perhaps even circling on your calendar, wondering, when are we going to get to the Olivet Discourse? Many of you have asked me how I intended to preach it. And so it seems to me that it would be good for us this morning as we gather together to read through the entirety of the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel. Because what we do this morning is we set the stage for the weeks to come. What we do this morning is a, is a primer. It gets our minds and our hearts ready to receive the clear teaching that Jesus has for us here. So with that, I ask you to go ahead and stand to your feet, please. We're going to read the entirety of Mark chapter 13. This is the word of God. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but it's not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to uh, councils and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back for his cloak. 
And alas for women, women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such ter- tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And that, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will begin to fall from heavens, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each to his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, we desperately need eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe what you have revealed in your word. At the same time, Father, we need you to bring us to focus on that which is primary, that which is significant, that which matters, that which can be known, and to stay away from the distractions that tend to ensnare so many. So Father, focus our hearts and our minds, cause us to be changed as a result of our encounter with you here today. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So before we begin our exposition of the text, a word of fairly lengthy introduction. It seems to me that there are three major issues at hand here. Now, you'll remember that this is Tuesday of Holy Week. By Friday, Jesus will be arrested and crucified. Now, he's already concluded his public preaching after handling a string of difficult questions from the religious leaders. They were constantly seeking to trap him in his own words. He stepped through with no problem whatsoever. Then he warned the people that were standing there. Technically, he warned his disciples, but the crowds were there, and they were listening in. And what he told them was, beware. Watch out for the scribes and the Pharisees, all these religious leaders who in their hypocrisy will lead you to hell. But then Jesus moves into the treasury, the place where the offering boxes were found. And there he directed his disciples' attention to a poor widow woman, a woman who put her very last penny in the offering box. Jesus held this woman up before them as a, a very picture of true, true de- uh, dedication, devotion, faith in God. And so from this point forward, what we'll find is that in the time that remains, Jesus is going to devote himself to the private teaching of his disciples, to preparing them for what lies ahead in the immediate future. Three times now, Mark has recorded for us Jesus' direct teaching about what awaits them when they get to Jerusalem. Don't get wrapped up in all the pomp. Don't get swept up in some earthly frenzy about what's coming. This is not a coronation, an earthly coronation that awaits Jesus in Jerusalem. What he said that's going to happen there is that he's going to be delivered. The Greek word was paradidomai. Do you remember that? He's going to be delivered, betrayed first, and then paradidomai, handed over by Judas to the religious leaders. Then the chief priests and the scribes, they were going to condemn him, and then they were going to paradidomai. They were going to hand him over to the Gentiles where he'd be flogged and beaten. He's going to be spit upon and mocked and then killed. But we need not worry because three days later, he would rise again. In absolute power and majesty, he would rise again. Again, I tell you, this was recorded for us three times in Mark's gospel, but you have to know that this was an ongoing conversation. Ever since Jesus and his disciples, they left the region of Galilee and headed south into Judea. This was just an ongoing conversation, the anticipation of what awaited Jesus there. They needed to know. These men needed to know and be prepared for what awaited them, what awaited their Savior there in Jerusalem, and yet still they wouldn't respond rightly. They would allow fear to take hold of their hearts. They would scatter 
In fact, Peter would deny even knowing Jesus. You see, there's a big difference between knowing what's coming, pretending to be prepared, and actually responding rightly in that moment. And despite all the information that Jesus had given them, they would fail quite miserably at this. But they had to know that this wasn't a surprise. They had to know that Jesus hadn't lost. They had to know that the plan hadn't failed. They had to know that everything was playing out just as God had ordained from the very beginning so that when what looked to the world and perhaps even to them like an absolute defeat came upon them, they would know that it was actually the ultimate victory, that Jesus Christ was in fact crushing the head of the serpent, that this was the way by which the works of the devil would be destroyed. This was the purpose for Jesus coming out. So now what we find in this morning's reading is that Jesus continues to prepare his disciples. He's pointing them a bit further into the future now. He's talking to them about the destruction of the temple which is to come. He's talking to them about the way in which the world will receive the gospel that they will proclaim. And then he's talking about his triumphant return. These are important matters, truly earth-shaking events. So yet again, Jesus needed to make sure. He wanted these men to understand what was happening so they wouldn't think that all things had gotten off track, would not think that the Savior had been defeated. They would not think that God had forgotten them and that the plan had been abandoned. They had to know that all things were happening just as God had predestined from the very beginning. In addition to that, He needed to make sure that they were ready, that they were prepared, that when the Son of Man returns, he doesn't find them asleep, unaware, not walking in righteousness, that they didn't find themselves disqualified because they did not endure until the end. Now you see, anytime we start talking about the end, anytime we start talking about the last days, anytime we start talking about the end of the world and return of Jesus Christ, everybody's ears perk up. You see, I would imagine, I I, I can't swear to it, but I would bet that if we were to announce that we're gonna spend the next three or four weeks talking about the end of the world and the return of Jesus, I promise you attendance would increase. People love to talk about prophecy, especially prophecy with regards to Jesus Christ coming back. Even people that could care very little about the rest of scripture, even people that have no real thoughts about the rest of the Bible, everybody's got some fascination with and some theory about the the end of the age. And I don't mock this. I don't say that this isn't something that's important. Dear friends, the fate of the world matters. The way the world's gonna receive the gospel you proclaim, it matters. More than anything, the return of Jesus Christ, it matters. You see, so many Christians, they've, they've fallen into some really faulty thoughts about what happens when we die. There's some groups of Christians that in their mind what happens is you die, you go to heaven, you receive your glorious body, and then that's where you stay. In your resurrected body, you stay there in heaven with Jesus forever. That's your ultimate home. There's other people that they know that to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. They know that their body goes into the ground and turns to dust, and that they depart in spirit to be with Jesus Christ in heaven. But then their idea of eternity is just this floaty experience, this, this ethereal, completely unphysical experience with Jesus for all eternity. But what we know is that that's just an intermediate state. That's just a transitory period that, yes, it is truly incredible. We can say that we desire to part and be with Christ. There's glory there. There's blessing and pleasures there like we can't imagine, but that's not the ultimate hope. That's not the ultimate designation. That what God has designed for us is to be spiritual people in physical bodies. The resurrection comes. The resurrection comes when Jesus Christ returns, and so we long for that day, his physical his glorious return as we reign in a new heavens and a new earth with him, that that's our ultimate hope. And that's a promise that should endure us through very tough times. As we look around us at a world that seems to be just plunging into chaos, as we look around us and following after Jesus Christ seems to be a fool's errand. We feel like maybe we've completely lost our minds. It's important that we recognize that Jesus Christ is coming back, that that's our ultimate promise. But I'm afraid that so many people, because, because of all the infighting, because of all the confusion, because of all the nonsense that seems to come up anytime we talk about the return of Jesus Christ, that so many people have just completely tuned it out. You'll talk to people and say, well, what do you believe about the end? And they'll say, well, I'm a pan-millennialist. I think it's just gonna all pan out in the end. And that may sound super mature and spiritual, but dear friends, theological laziness is not a virtue. You don't just get to cut the book of Revelation out of your Bible. It matters. Jesus spoke to us, and there's things that we need to learn about this. Now, I'm not saying you're going to have it all sorted out by the end of today. I'm not saying you're going to have it all sorted out ever. What I am saying is you've got a responsibility to study the Scriptures and know what God is revealing to you there, to be prepared in accordance with what he's revealing there. And clearly he wants us to know some things. Clearly there's something that Jesus wants us to know, and there's a way he wants us to respond to that which he allows us to know. But see, there's this other extreme section of the, the Christian population that has some inordinate obsession with the end times. 
some inordinate obsession with not, not just the end times, but the details, the timing, the way in which everything's gonna play out right down to the very letter. They get consumed by it. And to prove this reality, all you gotta do is go to the average Christian bookstore. Just volumes upon volumes about the return of Jesus Christ. Not just the fact that he's coming back, but men promising that they know exactly when and exactly how. Then go on the internet. There's literally thousands of websites, entire ministries built on this. Men telling you that they know when Jesus Christ is coming. Devoting their lives to the study of the last things. Eschatology is what it's called. To the study of the last things. To finding these, these secret hidden treasures within scripture that you haven't found yet. They're gonna guarantee that they can tell you exactly when Jesus Christ is coming back. And dear friends, I say with as much love and charity as I can muster, these men should be rejected at all costs. Beware. Now I need you to hear me very clearly. I'm not telling you that you need to stay clear of these men because they've fallen into the wrong system. I'm not telling you to avoid these men and to refuse to allow them to influence your life because I have figured out the proper order that things are going to happen. I have figured out the timing and when Jesus Christ is coming back. I have figured out who all the players are in this end time drama and they have not. No, 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 that's not it at all. What I'm telling you is that you must run from these men because they have completely missed the whole point of what Jesus is teaching and they will lead you to do the same. They will lead you to focus on the absolute wrong things with regards to this text and completely miss that which God has called you to and completely miss the ability to walk in the way that he's called you to walk in response to this. I assure you that brings great pleasure to our enemy. So again, I tell you, I don't stand before you and tell you that I'm the one that's got it all figured out. If your hope, when you found out we were coming to Mark 13, if your hope when you found out that all of that discourse was on the other side, if your hope when you found out we're gonna talk about the return of Jesus Christ, is that at the end of this time, however long we study this, at the end of this, you're gonna have some better understanding of the exact time when Jesus Christ is coming back, you're gonna be very disappointed. You see, there's, there's plenty of good and faithful men that land in every single one of the major eschatological camps. As best I can tell, John Piper is a premillennialist. By the time of his death, R.C. Sproul seemed to be a postmillennialist. While he didn't ever really use this term, as best I can tell, the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was an amillennialist. There's men that fall into every single one of these camps. And let me tell you how tricky this subject is. I know that there's some of you right now that are frustrated because I didn't slice the bacon thinner. So you're going, yeah, but there's camps within that. Tell us about all the different types of premillennialists. Tell us about all the different types of amillennialists. Slice it up thinner for us because you've already picked your camp. You've already picked your team. So I tell you, that's not what we've come to settle today. That's not the purpose for our studying of this word. But I hold these men up before you to show you that these good and faithful, these brilliant men, even they can't agree on this subject. I'm talking about men that have faithfully handed the word of God. These men that have faithfully fought to defend the clear teaching of scripture about the sovereignty of God. I'm talking to you about men that would agree, to some degree they would agree on almost every one of the major biblical doctrines with the exception of infant baptism, and the end times, the eschaton. And so again, I tell you, I don't have it all figured out. And if you hope to have it all figured out by the time you leave here, you're gonna be let down pretty badly. So I don't warn you to stay away from those guys because they fall into some understanding of the pattern of the last days that's different than I do. And look, eventually I'm going to tip my hand. Eventually you're gonna figure out what camp I'm in. You're probably gonna label me by the time we're, by the time we're done. Not today, but by the time we're done with this study because my intention is to preach Mark 13 as best I can. I'm not gonna try to be coy. I'm not gonna try to play the middle. As best I can understand the Olivet Discourse, I'm going to present that. I'm gonna teach that to you. And if I'm honest, I'm like so many other people that my understandings of the end time, they're, they're constantly in flux to one degree or another. So I'm, I'm gonna present this to you and I'll go ahead and give you a heads up that where I land is probably gonna disappoint a great number of you. But you're used to that by now, right? Where I land on this, the way in which I understand what Jesus is teaching here is probably gonna differ from many men that you trust and respect. It's probably gonna differ from where many of you land. But dear friends, it's not gonna hamper our fellowship. It's not gonna ruin our ability to serve and worship together. And I tell you with absolute certainty, it doesn't make either one of us a heretic. So I'm afraid though that so many men have, have consumed themselves with trying to figure out that which is unknowable. They've consumed themselves with trying to figure out every last detail of this prophecy regarding the end times. I'm talking about details like the times, the moments, who's who, who the players are, and they've completely lost sight of what we can know. And frankly, I think this is human nature. I call it the dudes in a pub phenomenon. See, when two dudes get together to have a beer and debate about something, they don't pick obvious stuff, right? 
Like they don't sit there and go, look, I think two plus two is four. And you say, agreed. And we shake hands and then sit there in silence. That's lame. No, we want to debate about something. And so I tell you, I think that, um, I think Lee Harvey Oswald killed JFK all by himself. And I think that within the next century that we're going to have colonized Mars. Now we've got something to debate over, don't we? And see, the beauty of this thing is there's nowhere to go to prove anybody that's right. There's nowhere that you could go. No, look, there is an answer. Look, somebody really did kill JFK. Or did they? And we either will land on Mars or we won't, right? Like, there's, there, I'm not telling you there's no right answer. I'm not telling you, what I'm telling you is we can't settle it in that moment. We can't know for certain in that moment. And that's what makes these debatable topics. Frankly, that's what draws men into this. Because everybody's on equal footing. Everybody gets to spout out. Everybody gets to begin their teaching with, I like to think. Sounds like some really sad Sunday school classes, doesn't it? But everybody gets a say in this. Everybody gets an opinion. And many within the church have fallen into this trap on this topic. Men that have no care for reading the word of God and just doing what it says. Men have spent no time grabbing the low-hanging fruit, the straightforward teaching of God's word. All of a sudden, they get all amped up because they get to have a say about something. They get to contribute to the conversation. And so they latch on to these few areas of scripture that can't be solved in a moment, that we really can't know in this lifetime. They latch on to those and ignore all the other things that the last 2,000 years have made very clear to us. In addition to this, men seem to, seem to latch on to this teaching, these prophecies about the end time, because they have no effect on their current life right now. See, that's what makes this the perfect topic, right? Is that everybody gets to have some input. Everybody gets to feel smart and spiritual. Everybody gets to contribute to the conversation, even if they have no knowledge whatsoever. And as they contribute to the conversation, it doesn't confront them in their sin whatsoever. They see no effect that this teaching has on the way that they walk, the way they treat their wife, the way that they raise their children, the way that they handle their money. So this is the perfect topic for men that care nothing about Scripture. For men who care nothing about walking in perfect life of holiness. Now, please understand me, I'm not lumping everybody together. If you find yourself just driven to study this stuff, if you find yourself giving lots of thought and lots of study to the end times, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at you, but I'm saying this is what I've found for many people. Secondly, what I find is there's this sneaky sense of spiritual superiority that can sneak in with regards to this. Like the, op- the opportunity to know something that everybody else doesn't know. This was a problem in the early church. The Gnostics came along. These were these men that they, they believed you could have access to some higher plane of existence if you could just be enlightened, if you could just achieve, achieve some insight that other people didn't have. And so they believed that there was great knowledge to be had, great insight to be found, even outside the scriptures, that would allow them to know God in some way that everybody else couldn't. So with regards to this topic, this is what men do. They're constantly trying to find these hidden things these little gems are trying to crack the code at all times. I figured out the code of exactly what this means and I know who the Antichrist is and I know what the events are gonna be and I know exactly the timing and when he's gonna come back. There's counseling, counting and calculating. Again, I say cracking the code, trying to figure out who all the players are and in the end what you find is they're more consumed with politics than they are the gospel. And so there've been big names that fall into this. Men that, again, I say build their entire their entire name, their, their entire religion around this. Men that guarantee that Jesus Christ is coming back in 1984. The 1984 comes and passes. They go, well, I forgot to carry the one. I meant 1994. And as they're proven wrong time and time again, and you take them to the scripture, like verse 32 that we just read that said, but concerning the day or the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. You tell them, you can't know the name. Well, maybe the season, and then they go right back to their tabulations. They find themselves glued to these YouTube videos, these rabbit holes, where these men are on a whiteboard just showing you all the ways in which they've got it figured out exactly when Jesus Christ is returning. So you better be ready. This is really the time that we're going to be right. And here's the problem. And again, I, I don't lump everybody into one category. I don't lump any of you into this category. But here has been my experience on this earth. If I've studied the scriptures and I've talked with men, what I have found is there's an inverse relationship between the amount of time a man spends trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back and how prepared he actually is for that day. You get so consumed with the things that can't be known, they completely miss the things that can. So I've already annoyed some of you, I'm sure. Please hear me out. Jesus spoke these words, these words of the Olivet Discourse, the words to John in Revelation, the Old Testament prophecies, all of it. They were written to an original audience. 
Like the dude standing there on the hill with Jesus Christ, he was literally telling them something. They were to understand and to respond to the thing that he was telling them. He was also saying something to the church that came in the second generation and the third generation and the generation today. With every single generation, every single generation of Christians that come to this word, his intention is that we would see more clearly the kingdom of God. They would respond more rightly to the kingdom of God. So I suppose my question for you, I understand that it's difficult. The apocalyptic teaching, the prophetic teaching, it's difficult. There's symbols and there's signs. It does require some work and some brain power. But I suppose my question for you is this. Do you really believe that God intends for your ability to rightly understand his teaching in this text to depend on the calculations of some dude that you've never heard of on YouTube somewhere? Or perhaps did he put it on the bottom shelf for stupid people like us? Perhaps did he put the things that he intends for us to know way down low? Perhaps does God intend for our understanding of the end times to match our understanding of the way in which the world was created? Perhaps the more we wrestle with these things and try to know that which can't be known, do we become more like the first century Jewish men? They completely missed the coming of Messiah. They had all the prophecies, but they focused on that which was not, and they missed when he came. Perhaps if many men completely lost sight of how they prepare themselves for the coming of Jesus Christ, they will miss the second coming because they've gotten so caught up in the things that can't be known, despite all the prophecy that we have, despite 2,000 years of church history. Listen, yes, this requires study. Has there ever been a pastor that called his people to study God's word more than I do? I'm constantly flogging you with the demand that you must study the word. It's hard work. Do the work of studying the word. And we thank God that he has placed us together in a church body where he's given us skilled teachers and preachers that can help us as we wrestle with this stuff. But doesn't it seem clear that any man, woman, or child that is filled with the Holy Spirit has the gifts they need to understand this book? Don't you believe that if something was critical for you to know in order to honor God, in order to be prepared for the return of Jesus Christ, he would allow you to know it through the working of his Holy Spirit? Again, I'm not talking about theological laziness. I'm not talking about covering your ears and pretending like the end isn't coming. But I'm saying, do you not believe that you can come to God's word under the power of his Holy Spirit within communion with the church and you'll know what he wants you to know? And that perhaps when we get all twisted up, when we get all twisted up, it's not, it's not because we're focusing on that which is primary. It's because we're focusing on that which he has said is hidden and belongs to him. And in the meantime, we step over those things that have been given to us and our children that come after us. That's my fear in this. Perhaps this is like the understanding of the teaching, of, of, of the parables. Jesus taught in parables so that the outsiders would not understand, but the insiders would understand. Do you remember what differentiated the outsiders from the insiders? Was it because the insiders were really good at calculus? Or was it because God had given them eyes to see? Was it all the supernatural work of God that allowed them to understand the teaching that was hidden from everybody else? And as long as we go and we try to play in the realm of everybody else, we'll always be confused just like they are. It's only when we sit at the feet of the master and allow him to instruct us, allow his spirit to inform us, that then we're gonna see it quite clearly. Again, I suppose what I'm trying to say is this. If you believe that your obligation is to uncover some hidden truth in the scriptures, then have at it. I'm not going to kick you out of the church. I'm not going to scold you. I'm not going to make fun of you, not into your face at least. But here's the thing. If you truly believe that that's what you're intended to do, to, to try to crack the code to the coming back of Jesus Christ, then you must put that up against that thing which can be known. If anything that you find yourself studying, anything that you find yourself teaching, anything that you find yourself devoting your life to does not drive you deeper into communion with Jesus Christ, it does not cause you to walk more faithfully in righteousness. It's to be rejected, is it not? If your obsession with the end times and the signs and the seasons and the times and the dates does not drive you deeper into communion with God and does not cause you to walk in personal holiness, then it isn't from him. It can't be, can it? And so, I think the best way to approach this is to lay out before you. I think there are three things that Jesus clearly, undeniably wants us to know with regards to this text. Number one, he's coming back physically, personally, visibly. Jesus Christ is coming back. You see, there have been many people throughout church history, many people today that they preach that when Jesus says, behold, I'm coming back soon, he's talking only about in spirit. He's talking about the promise and the sending of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That Jesus Christ, yes, he has come back. He has come back in those in whom he dwells. He's come back within the church. There's other men that believe, well, 
what Jesus is talking about there is he's coming back, but he's coming back in the spirit of his teaching. That, it, that is the moral teaching of Jesus Christ infiltrates the world and men and women, those that are his, we begin to walk more like him. As we become his hands and his feet, that that's what he means when he says that he is coming back. But that Jesus is not actually coming back personally, physically, visibly. Dear friends, I would go so far as to tell you this morning that I don't think you can be truly Christian if you do not hold to a personal, physical return of Jesus Christ. Scripture is too clear on this. On the day of ascension, as his disciples stood around staring into the sky, I'm imagining with their mouths agape. You remember what the angel said to them in Acts 1.11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? This Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way in which you saw him going into heaven. How did Jesus ascend into heaven? Physically, personally, visibly. We will see him return in this very same way. And we must long for this day as his believers, as his followers, as the world around us seems to crumble. Everything around us seems to be screaming so loudly for our attention. We must look forward to that day when Jesus Christ comes back. And the way we guard against this is we don't let this place feel too much like home. See, the more this place begins to feel like heaven, the more comfortable we get here. I can imagine a scenario where we say, okay, Jesus Christ is coming back tomorrow. And we say, wait a minute, I'm kind of enjoying it here. Can you come with me tomorrow? Check back later. I might be ready then. Because what we found throughout church history is the harder times got the greater persecution grew, the more anticipation they had for the return of Jesus Christ. They found themselves looking to the sky saying, come Lord Jesus, come. Dear friends, I would tell you that the opulence in which we live, the comfort, the way in which we try to build cocoons around ourselves to make sure that we never suffer, it is hampering our ability to be prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. It caused us to never even look forward to it. Why would we? We're already in heaven. Two cars, a house, some money in the bank. The government guaranteeing that if you'll just follow their rules, you'll never get sick? Why in the world would we long for heaven? Secondly, the world will continue on its current path of rebellion. Its hatred for God and his people will only grow until Jesus returns. Now what I said was that these are undeniable truths, and I suppose that's not fair at this one, because there are plenty of orthodox Christian teachers, quite a few in fact, that don't believe this is the case. They believe, in fact, that the world is going to grow in righteousness and holiness. And these aren't stupid men. These aren't men that don't know the scriptures. They come to passages like Matthew 13, where it says that the kingdom of God is like some yeast hidden in a lump, and eventually it leavens the entire loaf. They see the kingdom of God like a mustard seed that is planted and eventually becomes a beautiful giant tree, and that the birds and the beasts, they all come to find shade there. And so what they believe then is that this gospel will eventually fill the world. Not, not merely will the gospel be preached to the ends of the world, but that the gospel will take over and transform, that the world will become Christian, that the world will be filled with believers, that the world will be ruled by the church, that there will be peace and righteousness throughout all the earth, that generation after generation as this gospel is proclaimed, that eventually more hearts are turned, the world becomes Christianized, the world becomes peaceful, and then Jesus Christ is ready to step into a kingdom prepared for him in advance. That's what they believe. Many, again, I tell you, faithful men. The king of American preachers, Jonathan Edwards, he believed this. He held fast to this. But I can't see it. I simply can't see it. When I read passages like Mark 13 and all the rest of the New Testament, when I read the Gospels and I see that everywhere that Jesus went, as the kingdom of God revealed itself, the kingdom of darkness revolted all the more. The demons couldn't help but cry out and revolt against the light that Jesus Christ brought into the world. What I see is that everywhere the gospel is proclaimed, while God is saving souls, there are many more lost that hate it. They find it as an abomination. It's a stench to their nostrils. That's what I see in scripture. That's what I see in the world around me. But there are many that they believe that absolutely what's going to happen is there's going to be a time of just incredible peace and unity on the earth, even before Jesus Christ comes back. The problem is it can lead them into some kind of social gospel. They then make peace their goal. Everybody claiming the name of Christ, their goal, and so they start playing these worldly games. Instead of sowing seeds of the gospel and trusting God with whatever comes next, instead of sowing seeds of the gospel and recognizing the vast majority of the world won't want this, the vast majority of the world is going to reject this and hate this, they then begin playing the world's games, trying to entice them. They then believe that the kingdom of God is all about social programs. The kingdom of God is all about feeding the hungry. The kingdom of God is all about making up schools and loving your neighbor. Dear friends, that's not what the Bible says. Do we do these things? Absolutely. Do we feed the homeless? Yes. Do we care for our neighbor? Yes. But the only way these men are going to be saved is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only tool we have. That's the only way peace comes to this earth is through the preaching of the word. 
That's literally the only bullet you have to fire. Do you understand that? Everything else is auxiliary. The bullet you had to fire is the gospel of Jesus Christ and proclaiming it boldly, but knowing that the world's going to hate it. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34 through 36. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I did not come, for I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He's saying not only is the whole world not going to be Christianized, not only are whole countries not going to be Christianized, your own house may not be. Do you understand this? That mothers and daughters will turn on each other. That everywhere the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, people are divided. There's not peace found there. But at the same time, we're not the ones going out to make physical war. We don't win converts at the tip of the sword. The sword is a picture for the, the, the division that comes everywhere that we proclaim it. That seems to be what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that all of that discourse and everywhere else throughout Scripture, natural man is enslaved. He is enslaved to sin. Natural man wants to rule the world. Everybody else wants to rule the world. Guess what? That creates a problem. You got a bunch of little kings with little kingdoms constantly making war on each other. And then even those people, even those people that don't cheat and lie and steal, they've they've got an, an inward kingdom that they built for themselves. They're in no less revolt against God. They're no less self-focused. They've just learned to contain these. They've learned to play nice. And so so many people within the church, that's the problem they fall for. They believe the gospel is all about telling people to be nice. Just be nice and quit fighting. Just be nice and quit making wars with each other. But that's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is to save souls. So you preach this gospel and this is what you see. Even the men that think they're okay. And that's where you really find some of the most resistance. Look, I'm not talking about gangbangers and crackheads. Many of those people, they know I'm not right with God. And perhaps they can hear from you. You have to convince these men that they're sinners. You may have to convince them that there's a judgment day for these sins. I'm talking about the nice, pretty, all-American families. Those people that think they have the world by the tail. Everything's just right. They don't cheat on each other. They pay their taxes. They got some money in the bank, two cars and a house. And you come to those people and say, you're at war with God. Well, I wasn't, but now I'm at war with you. The gospel will divide. And everywhere that's proclaimed, we will find persecution and resistance and hatred and sword. Don't let a few hundred years of American history trick you into believing that that's not the case. Don't let a few hundred years of religious freedom here in this country convince you that that's not the case. Persecution always comes. Don't let the world lull you to sleep into believing that they're your friend. They're not. But at the same time, we don't pull back. I'm not talking about monasticism here. I'm not talking about us pulling out completely because that's what others will do. They come and they, they preach the gospel and they see it rejected by so many. And so they begin to try and build their church through all these worldly means, through all these all these false gospels, all these social sciences, trying desperately, to, trying desperately to win men to them. But Jesus says, no. The world is under the power of Satan. They are blind, they are deaf, they are spiritually dead. They are following the God of this world in their rebellion, and things are only going to get worse until I return. That even those who call themselves Christian, many of them will grow cold. They'll assume that the gospel has failed. They'll assume that the gospel is useless. How many men and women have we watched that have followed down the path of the gospel and then they ran into some earthly trouble and they thought, well, we tried and it didn't work. My kid's still not acting right. Don't tell me the gospel's gonna fix them. It hasn't fixed them. My marriage is still busted. Don't tell me the gospel's gonna work. I'm still broken. My body's still not working. Don't tell me the gospel's working. I'm telling you, the gospel's the only thing that works. The problem is you got the wrong goals. The problem is you count winning differently than the Bible counts winning. The problem is you understand your eternal destiny a whole lot different than Jesus does. But many men, they'll determine that the gospel has failed and they'll wander away and try something else. The difference, you must know that the world is going to continue to revolt. They're going to continue to rebel. There's going to continue to be violence and war and hatred and an increase in evil until Jesus Christ comes and sets it all right. That only the prince of peace will set it all right as he deals with all evil on the earth once and for all. I think I'm pessimistic, don't you? but it's critical we understand. Again, I tell you, I don't think we're called to be a bunch of monks. We're not called to go huddle up together in First Baptist Island and kick the rest of the world out. We're called to interact with the world. We're called to live in the world. We're called to love these sinners, to love these rebels enough to tell them the hard truth and to lay our life down if that's what it takes. 
they may come to know and see the gospel. Yes, we feed them. Yes, we clothe them. Yes, we physically care for them, all the while preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only thing that's going to save them. At the same time, we recognize that this gospel is not going to transform the world until Jesus Christ comes back and casts all sin from this earth, all sinners from this earth. That the way in which the kingdom of God comes today is as this gospel is proclaimed and individuals' hearts are changed. The supernatural work that only God can do is individual lives are changed through the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's the way in which the kingdom comes today as he reigns in their lives today, even as he reigns in heaven over all creation. That that's the picture that he's calling us to. So we can't be caught off guard. We can't be discouraged. We can't think the gospel has failed. We can't think there's something wrong with us or our message when the world hates us for preaching it. When we don't find the whole world falling down on their face and worshiping Jesus Christ, he says, I told you they wouldn't. I told you they just pushed back harder the more you preached it. Now keep preaching it. So, the three things that we must know. Jesus Christ is coming back. The world will continue to spiral further and further into evil and chaos until that day. And number three, we must be ready. You must be ready. This is absolutely critical. This is where I'm afraid so many people lose sight. So many people get so caught up in when Jesus Christ is coming back, they don't focus on the fact that they must be ready. And whether you believe that Jesus Christ could come back at literally any moment, like if you believe that at just a second Jesus Christ could appear, or if you believe that there's some other things that have to happen, certain things which must happen before Jesus Christ comes back. Regardless, either way, you must know that Jesus says undeniably in his word, stay ready, be awake, be on guard. I'll read you just a few of these passages. Revelation 3.3, 3, his words to the church at Sardis. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Luke 12, 40. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might not go about naked and be seen exposed. And then the final portion of this morning's text. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each one to his own work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. You get the picture? Be on guard. Be sober. Be awake. Again, I say that's part of the problem with people trying to, constantly trying to figure out when he's coming back. Listen, I was a teenager. If my parents told me what time they were coming back, I lived like a devil right up until the last 30 minutes, and then I cleaned it up. Jesus Christ says, stay alert. Be sober. Be awake. You don't know when I am coming back. He told Peter and James and John and Andrew, stay awake. He tells us today, stay awake. If he doesn't come back before I die, he's telling my children, stay awake. This isn't just a call to that one generation that will be here when he comes back. It's a call to every generation of Christians throughout all time, stay awake. Do not allow yourself to get so comfortable. Do not allow the enemy to whisper sweet hushes. That's what he does. You get this? He wants you fat and happy. He wants you with a full belly and not a care in the world, fast asleep. That's what he wants more than anything else. And so what do we do oftentimes as we gather together as a church? We pray for what the enemy wants. Instead of praying for God's will to be done, instead of praying for our brothers to keep charging on during their suffering, we constantly pray that God would take away the things that might actually keep them awake. I'm not saying you don't pray for healing. Yes, we pray for healing. I'm not saying you don't, make, you don't meet people's needs, but that can't be the whole goal. You might be working for the devil. Dear God, just help them to get back comfortable again so they can be lulled to sleep, so they won't be awake when you come back. But you got to understand that this call to be awake, this isn't just we're standing at the door with our bags in our hand looking for heaven. This is a way in which you walk. It's a sober-mindedness. What Jesus talks about with regards to being ready, it isn't stop doing everything else and stand and wait for my return. It's get busy doing the things I've called you to do. It's a call to a walk of holiness and righteousness. It's hard. It's all out to war against yourself at times. The sin that reigns in your heart. The, the desire for comfort in this world. But he's saying you must be ready. You must be ready. This is the thing that sustained the early church. It sustained so many persecuted Christians since that day. 
Be ready. Be on guard. The world tells you you're crazy to follow Jesus in the middle of this. You're crazy to keep living like this. You've got to build some comfort into your life. You've got to set some money back. You've got to protect yourself. And he says, no. No, that's not what it means to be ready. It means at all times to preach the gospel. It means to stay in the word. It means to gather with the saints. It means to walk in righteousness. So he says, you must be ready. So I believe that these are the three things that we must keep before our eyes as we walk through Mark 13 together. Again, I don't know how we're going to break up the rest of this chapter, but whatever God leads us to, if we lose sight of these three things, we've lost it. If whatever you're studying with regards to your understanding of the end time, it causes you to lose sight of these three things, you've lost it. You're surely off base. So we hold these three things before us as we study. Now don't. That was my introduction. But don't worry. We're only going to cover two verses today. We're going to turn to these first two verses here. As Mark writes, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So again, it says Jesus came out of the temple. You'll remember last week I told you that Jesus was leaving the temple for the last time. Actually, I misspoke last week. What I said last week was he was leaving the temple for the last time as a free man, but he won't be back. Now, Matthew tells us that Jesus let out a great lament as they were exiting. We read this in Matthew 23, verse 37 through 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until, I say, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is heartbroken over what's going to happen. He's not gloating. Jesus is utterly heartbroken over what's going to come in this once great city, this capital of Israel, Jerusalem, the city of peace. It knew no peace. They rejected the prince of peace. He had come to them and offered them peace with God. He had come to them and offered them himself. But these people who had rejected every prophet that had come before, they had beaten and killed every prophet that had come before, they did the same with the last, the greatest, the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. They would kill him just like they had killed the others, and he would have received them to himself had they just turned. Had they just turned and repented of their sin, received him as king of all, he would have taken them under his wings like a hen to her chicks. He would have loved them and protected them. They would have, he would have been their, their place of salvation. So it says now that he's exiting out. He's going out to the east, up over the Mount of Olives. Jesus spent each night of this holy week in the town of Bethany. We believe more than likely spending the night at the uh, home of his dear friends, Mary, Martha, and their brother whom Jesus raised from the dead, a man called Lazarus. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So perhaps this was the disciples' response to Jesus' lament. Because remember, Jesus says here, see, your house is left to you desolate. And they thought, desolate? This place is thriving. What are you talking about? There's literally thousands of people coming and going. All these animals that are being brought in as, as sacrifices. Mountains of silver being collected in the offering boxes. What do you mean desolate? This place is doing great. And now that you've cleansed it out, Jesus... You remember on the first day of this week, Jesus had come in and he cleaned out the temple. The court of Gentiles where men were buying and selling and trading, he chased them out. In addition to that, you've already handled the religious leaders so well. People are eating out of your hand, Jesus. Surely you want to take your rightful place as the king of Israel. Surely you want to take a seat as ruler over the people right here in this wonderful town, this magnificent temple. Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. It truly was a magnificent place. Solomon built a truly resplendent temple. It was gorgeous. And you remember the Babylonians came and destroyed it. They dragged the people off into exile. But God promised, actually he had promised 200 years earlier, that the Persians would come to power, that a man named Cyrus would become king, and that he would send the people back home. You remember this. We studied it together. On Sunday mornings, we studied the book of Nehemiah. On Wednesday nights, we studied the book of Ezra. We studied how God used a man called Zerubbabel to come back and rebuild the temple. How God used a man called Nehemiah to rebuild the wall around the city. How God used a man named Ezra to rebuild the people as he preached the law to them. And they rebuilt the temple, just as God had called them to. But the old timers wept because it was nothing like Solomon's temple. 
Even worse than that, the glory of God had not returned to this place. And so for the next four centuries, we see these cycles as these Gentile kings rise to power. And perhaps the, perhaps the temple would be built up for a moment, but then the kings or even some of the priests at times, they would come in and they would, they would desecrate, they would defile this temple. Until eventually in the year 20 BC, a man named King Herod determined that he was not only going to restore but expand the temple. And the people were, the Jewish people, they were rightfully a little bit hesitant about this. I'm guessing Herod was a husband that started a lot of projects and didn't finish them. And they thought, you're going to tear this temple apart, but you're never going to get around to finishing it. And so by the time Jesus had come, this project had been going on for nearly five decades. The completion of this project, it didn't come until the year 63 A.D., it gives you some idea of the scope of what King Herod was doing there. It took 80 years to restore and to build upon, to restore this temple to what it once was, even greater. But even still, even though there were still yet many years in the construction of the temple yet to go, even in the year 30 AD, as Jesus and his disciples are walking through this temple complex, it was a sight to behold. You remember I've told you on numerous occasions that the outer court, the court of Gentiles, it spanned 35 acres. That's nearly 20, uh, 20% of the entire city of Jerusalem at that time. Some of the walls were as high as 150 feet. They tell us that the columns around the outside, around the promenade, that the columns were 50 foot tall. The, the Jewish historian Josephus, he tells us that three men could stand like this, fingertip to fingertip, and barely get their arms around one of these columns. That means there's a circumference of something like 18 feet. In addition to that, we're told that much of the temple was covered in pure gold. So it would catch the sun's rays, and you can imagine just coming in from the east off the Mount of Olives, and as the sun hits the, hits the temple and shines back, almost like the glory of God blinding you. You can't even look at the temple where you're headed. Just a truly magnificent sight. The disciples said, look what wonderful stones. Each stone, it was carved with remarkable precision. They were laid together absolutely perfectly. Some of these stones were 40 foot wide, 18 foot tall, 12 foot in depth. That's basically this entire section of our sanctuary. That's one stone. Some of these stones weigh 500 tons. That's over a million pounds. And you're talking about many of them making this just massive, beautiful temple. It still remains like that today, even as it's in ruins. Even as you go today, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. And I've not even made it into the temple proper, right? We're not talking about the Holy of Holies. We're not talking about the temple of priests. We're talking about just that which can be seen today. It's truly incredible to see. And these men from Galilee, they'd been to the temple before. Even though it was only within these three years as they came with Jesus to the feasts, they had been to the temple before, but they didn't live there. And there's something about coming to the temple during the times of the feast that just would have caught their eye. And so we don't know whether their response here was because of the lament that Jesus had offered up or perhaps it was just an outburst from the sight of what they were seeing there, these golden stones, these gigantic columns, and all the people coming and going. But they said, do you not see? Verse 2, and Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So those of us that have grown up in the church, those of us that sat under lessons about the destruction of the temple, we don't really even flinch at this. Like that was kind of a foregone conclusion. We don't understand what an incredible statement this was. Jesus Christ is a Jewish man born under the Jewish law, preaching the gospel to the Jewish people from the tribe of Judah and the family of David. If there would have ever been a man that had a deep love, admiration, concern for the temple of God, it would have been Jesus. Now, we spent so much time talking about the cursing of the fig tree earlier in this week. We talked about the fact that that, that fig tree, it represented apostate Israel, the curse that had come upon them because they didn't bear fruit. They didn't fulfill the purpose for which God had called them and created them. And so they were under a curse. They would wither and die. And then now looking back some 2,000 years, we now know what was happening when Jesus was cleansing the temple. This wasn't a restoration. This wasn't a reformation of the temple. This was a curse. This was a destruction that was going to come upon them. But for Jesus to stand there with those disciples in front of this incredible temple, this project that had already taken 50 years up to this point, it was not yet done. For Jesus to stand there with so much assurance, he says, Matthew records this as saying, records him as saying, truly I say to you, that is amen, Amen, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You don't understand the power of this prophetic statement. There's many commentators who have rightly observed that even just this prophecy alone should be enough to drive a man to understand the authority of Jesus Christ. Nobody was making predictions like this. And then for the gospel writers to record them for us, as best we can tell, Mark wrote his gospel sometime in the late 50s. 
Matthew and Luke wrote their gospel sometime in the early to mid-60s. So while these men were recording this prophetic statement of Jesus Christ, the temple was either still under construction or had barely been finished. And he says, this place will be destroyed. Not one stone left upon another. Incredible prophecy. And sure enough, we know it played out exactly as he has said. Forty years later, in the year 70 A.D., there was a rebellion that actually began in 66 or 67 A.D. We don't really have time to unpack the whole story. Perhaps we will in weeks to come, but we don't have really a reading of this in Scripture, right? This, this didn't happen. Um, it didn't play out for us in, in Scripture. We have to go to men like Josephus, a Jewish historian, but he talks about the fact that there was just continued tension between the Roman and the Jewish people and that eventually there was an uprising and that because of some of the things that the, that the Romans had done, the zealots, those people that really wanted to revolt, to take the lives of the Romans, their, their influence grew. And so as a result, they pushed back too far against the Romans. And so they came and there was war. It's a war that lasted for three and a half years, an absolutely horrific battle. We're told that something like a million Jewish people died many of them at the hands of their own countrymen because they couldn't seem to agree on whether they were supposed to submit or they were supposed to continue to fight back. So there's this infighting, there's this violence, there's this starvation, mothers eating their children, just horrific scene. Absolutely cataclysmic, horrific scene. Then on April 14th, just a few days before Passover, they finally, they finished the last of these sieges. A man named Titus. His daddy was the emperor. Someday he would be the emperor. Now, Josephus tells us that Titus did not intend to destroy the temple. He thought it'd be nice to set it up as a Roman, Roman temple that he had told his men not to destroy it, but we're reminded that everything God says will happen, will happen. Even a well-meaning man like Titus can't thwart the preordained plans of God. The temple would be destroyed. And so Josephus records part of the scene for us like this. As the legions charged in, neither persuasion nor threat could check their impe uh, impetuousness. Passion alone was in command. Crowded together around the entrances, many were trampled by their friends. Many fell among the still hot smoke and ruins of the colonnades and they died as miserably as those that were defeated. As they neared the sanctuary, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's commands as he urged them in the front row to throw in more firebrands. The partisans were no longer in a position to help. Everywhere was slaughter and flight. Most of the victim, victims were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, butchered wherever they were caught. Around the altar, the heaps of corpses grew higher and higher, while down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood. And the bodies of those killed at the top, they slithered to the bottom. It's a massacre, truly horrendous. These people that had been called by God's name and this place that had been called the house of God, utterly decimated and destroyed, just as Jesus Christ had said. He had promised not one stone would be left upon another, and it wasn't. Jerusalem, utterly decimated. This place that was the center of Jewish life. This place where God had called his people to come into his presence. He allowed the nations to come and pray to him. He allowed those who were his to come into his presence and offer sacrifice and to seek the forgiveness of sins, and it was gone. It's still gone. It hasn't been rebuilt. Again, I tell you, this was not a reformation. This was a destruction, complete destruction. The time for the temple had passed. And we know today that Jesus Christ is the true temple of God. He had said that during the first visit to the temple during his earthly ministry. He had said, destroy this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. And the people didn't understand that he was talking about his body. And they said, you'll do this? It's been being built for 46 years and you think you're gonna rebuild it in three days? No clue that he was talking about himself that he himself is the temple of God. Anybody wishing to be with God, anybody wishing to be made right with God, to worship God, to honor God, to pray to God, to honor their life as a living sacrifice to God, they come to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. He is the living temple. That we come to him, not in a physical place, at one place at one time, we come to him anywhere in spirit. And that you cannot destroy Jesus Christ as you destroy this temple. You kill him, three days later he rises again in power and glory. In addition to that, we know that we ourselves, his people, that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3. He sends his spirit to indwell those that are his. That no longer does God tabernacle. That's the word for dwelling. No longer does he tabernacle in a tent. No longer does he tabernacle in a, in a building built by human hands. He tabernacles in his people, built by his hands for his purpose. That God now dwells within us, that we are his people. That we can now come to him by the Spirit, through Jesus Christ, in prayer, in worship, in sacrificing our lives, living sacrifices, that we ourselves are the temple of God. And just like Jesus Christ, the second death shall never touch us. That even in death, we too shall be raised in power and glory. We will not be destroyed, not like the temple. But in addition to that, that we are being built together as living stones into the temple of God. I'm not gonna read it for you. Go home and read 2 
the second chapter of the book of Ephesians where he talks about this fact that the foundation is the apostles and the prophets and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone and we as living stones are being built into the temple, into the house of God. You see, there's a certain extent to which you yourself are a temple of God, but there's something that God's doing here as he gathers his people together that you can't do alone. There's a way in which he's glorified as you gather together. There's a way in which he uses you as you're gathered together that you miss out on when you don't gather with the saints, that you miss out on when you don't align your body, your, your, your physical body, your life, your everything with this church, the church that Jesus Christ is building. And this church, he has said, the gates of hell will not stand against it. There's no destroying the true church of God. That's the point that he's making clear. The temple has served its purpose, but it's become corrupt and it will be no more. You think this place is thriving? It will be utterly destroyed. We don't keep score the way the rest of the world does. You understand this. There's churches all throughout this country that you look at and you go, look at all the people. Look at the magnificent buildings. Look at the mountains of money. Surely God must be pleased and surely this place will stand forever. And I say to you, dear friends, if they don't stand on who God is, they're not filled with the spirit of God, if they're not filled with believers who themselves are filled with the spirit of God, they will not stand, they will be destroyed. As we look around us and we don't have these things, we don't have walls of gold, we don't have people lining up outside waiting to get in, we don't have mountains of silver, and yet, dear friends, I tell you that this church thrives because Jesus Christ has so blessed his people. His spirit has so indwelled his people. He is building us together as living stones. That's the beauty of what he's saying here. You don't have to keep score the way the rest of the world keeps score. He's saying that I don't care about outward religion. Outward religion means nothing. Outward religion can be deceptive. Outward religion can lie. Outward religion can hold back, can hide from us a heart that is evil and is wicked. I don't care about outward religion. I delight in true worship. He says elsewhere in the scripture that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. You don't know the church, you don't know the temple of God that will not pass away. It's one that's built on the foundation of his word. Those that preach his word, those that pray his word, those that live by his word, it will never waste away. It will never be destroyed. There's nothing this earth can bring about against us. There's nothing hell can bring against us to destroy this temple that God is building. Don't you see? But it's so easy for us to get caught up in the physical. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the externals. It's so easy for us to get distracted or get discouraged because we don't think the gospel is taking hold the way of our, of our community the way we think that it should. He says none of that matters, all of that. Literally every single physical thing that you can lay eyes on, it will all be destroyed. It's only, the, it's only that which is done in spirit and in truth that will endure. So I suppose I, I wanna end here. I got more I wanna say, but you've been so patient. Do you know you guys sit through an hour worth of sermon every week? Some of y'all people are nodding. That ain't normal. That's not normal. When you love the word of God, you have a thirst for the word of God. You say, don't stop, keep going. But eventually I gotta quit. So I'll end with these questions. When you look at your life, again, we're not talking about the externals. I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about your life. I'm talking about what is within in those secret and quiet places when nobody's looking. Do you find yourself living like a man who believes that the world is passing away, but that the things of heaven, the things of God are eternal and unfading? Or do you find yourselves grabbing onto the physical, that which is temporal and passing away? Do you find yourselves refusing to cling on to that which will last forever in order to hold on to that which will ultimately be destroyed? Do you find yourself shaken by any little bit of turbulence in this world? Any bad news from the doctor? Any threat of violence or war? Anytime your bank account gets under some magic number or do you find yourself standing strong on the promises of God when you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and people spit in your face and reject you do you find yourself wanting to run and cry in the corner like a little baby or do you find yourself saying this is exactly as God has said it would and I will continue to plant these seeds because I know that only this gospel saves and lastly do you find yourself walking in sober-minded alert obedience to Jesus Christ Jesus Christ returns today. Will he find you ready for that return or have you been lulled to sleep by the enemy? 
Dear friends, my hope is that by the time we get done with the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel, we will all, every last one of us, be willing to stand up and say with the Apostle John, Amen, come Lord Jesus, come. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, I thank you for this strange people. This people that desires to hear your word. More than anything else, a desire for your word. Father, I thank you that in this word, we're not just studying facts and history, that we are seeing you. What we need more desperately than anything else is to know and see you rightly. So help us. Help us to drown out all the distractions. Help us to reject any of the secondary, tertiary, unimportant things. Father, help us to cling to that which is true and that which is eternal. Help us to walk in righteousness, Father. Help us to stay prepared at all times. Help us to be alert to the fact that there is an enemy and he is on the prowl, desperately seeking to devour us. Father, above all, be glorified. Be glorified in the words that we sing, the meditations of our heart, and the way in which we leave this place. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.